0: Hey, thank you for joining me. Um, we're reading from the memoirs of President Joseph Smith the 1832 to 1914. And um, I'm having a bit of difficulty with my editing. So um, fast forward through um, bits that might be duplicated. And I do apologize. This is new to me and I will learn eventually. But I just want to get this um, shared because um, I don't think it's shared far, far and wide enough. And I'm going to re-repeat some of um, one paragraph from my previous reading of chapter 3. And this is um, to do with polygamy and to do with one of the women that um, had be, uh, connected her name to Joseph Smith as a polygamous wife. And this is what Joseph Smith the third says. Um, this is from page 23. And was published in the Saints Herald, December the 25th, 1934. Um, and um, let's quote, Melissa Lott was one of the women to whom it was alleged my father was married. If this were true, it certainly was not known to any of father's family at the time he was living or after. And it is equally certain she never lived with him as his wife. She married Ira Willis, whom I knew well, a man of all work about the premises where he lived where we lived um so there is no evidence of there being a relationship between Missa, melissa lott and joseph smith jr and um later on um in this work of um joseph smith's joseph smith the third um he goes to salt lake city and he communicates with the women and he tries to ascertain um what was going on and um Basically to, uh, to prove um, the falseness of this. Um, let me carry on reading. Um, I used to watch him build the fire in the outside kitchen. And this is where we're talking about Ira Willis now. And the husband of Melissa Lott. He would rake open the ashes with which he had covered the brands in the fireplace the night before. Put fresh fuel upon them fan them into flame and hang a tea kettle on the crane hook over the blaze. One cold morning after those proceedings, I went outdoors to get some wood. As I picked up the axe at the wood plow, I recalled I had heard someone say no one could touch his tongue to a frosty axe. Oh no, I remember this now. (laughs) Ever so lightly, without the tongue becoming fast to the steel, wondering if that could be true i held the axe up to my mouth intending to just try it with the tiny tip of my tongue and then instantly draw it away with the metal to my astonishment and dismay my whole tongue about as far as it could be drawn out of my mouth instantly became fastened to the blade (laughs) joseph smith the third does make me laugh (laughs) Okay, so this is what it says. Um, In a panic and holding the axe up in front of my face, I rushed into the kitchen where Ira was. Seeing the situation, (laughs) at a glance, he caught the tea kettle off the hook, its contents only tepid as yet, and poured the water on the axe, which immediately released its grip, and set my tongue free. How Ira... (laughs) How Ira did laugh! He affirmed that he imagined I would never need another lesson like that, and I agreed with him. For I had had experiment enough for one person. <laughs> so this Joseph Smith the he he just comes across as so serious, but the things that he does, hilarious. Um. By breakfast time, I had besides a mouthful of swollen tongue and. Oh, have I missed that bit? Um, Let me uh, reread that. I've laughed so much, I've lost my place. By breakfast time, I had besides a mouthful of swollen tongue and had to go without food since I could neither chew nor swallow. Mother. <laughs> mother joined in the laugh at my expense though she did take pity on me and poured some oil in my mouth which eased the smart had I attempted to pull my tongue loose from the cold metal the skin would have come off so there's poor Joseph Smith the third he's made everyone laugh including his mum Emma Smith um, I'm not quite sure when was this Um, don't know which year this is Um, I'm not quite sure how old he is at this time, but um, I think, no, I'm sure that we'll find out in a bit. So let's carry on with reading. Thank you for joining me, and um, I love to learn things, and maybe I'll share more of what I've read of other um, journals and resources. So let's carry on. Some Picrancy was added to the incident by the fact that there was a party to be held at our house that day in my honour and I was much afraid that I would have to sit in a corner nursing my sore tongue and watch the other youngsters enjoy enjoy the hilarity of the occasion. To my relief however before the time for the party arrived the swelling had subsided and I was about as good as new. I had acquired an increase of experience However, which was valuable to me in afterlife. <laughs> Just when Ira Willis and Melissa Lot were married, whether before the exodus or on their way west, I do not know. But I seem to remember hearing of their marriage about the time of the general departure from Nauvoo. Um, Nauvoo um, being uh, the new name for Commerce. I never saw him again, nor her until 1889, when I met her in Lehigh, Utah, the point at which they had settled. I had been told I would not dare to see or call upon Melissa Willis and ask her about affairs in Nauvoo, for she knew things, it was alleged, that I would not wish to hear. She came to our meeting in Music Hall, and I was told of her presence. After the service was over, I sought her out and secured permission to call upon her. In the interview thus secured, I discovered that whatever claims she or others may have made about her having been married to my father, she could not uphold them, but instead plainly stated that she was the wife of Ira Willis and had never lived with Joseph Smith as his wife at his house or elsewhere. My interview with her Will be related in detail further in these memoirs well there you go so she confirmed there was no um marital um nothing going on that she didn't live with him and that she wasn't um his wife so interesting huh the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints is the church saying these things making these um sticking by So, this is why I would like you to um, research and look for um, falsities, to look, to uh, search out histories to see where um, something doesn't feel right. Um, So, once again, as you listen, you'll find out more. Here we go, the next part. This proxy business is the next heading. Upon the occasions of my several visits to Utah, I heard a great many odd stories about events that happened among the people there. One striking one comes to memory now. It was told me in Salt Lake City in 1889 and runs thus. A certain promised elder in the church out there whose name need not be mentioned here but whom for the sake of convenience i will call elder john returned to his home after a short absence from the city he found a number of letters awaiting him among them three from as many aged sisters there known to both himself and his wife after reading these epistles he threw them down with an exclamation of impatience and disgust curious so curiously, his wife asked the meaning of his gesture, and he replied, "Oh, phew, you know, sisters, blah 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 blah. Given the names of the three who had written him, why, yes," said his wife, "I know who they are. Why? Well, he said, here they have all three written me. One asking me to go to the temple with her and stand as proxy while she is sealed to the patriarch Hiram Smith, and the other two, given the names." desiring me to do the same for them while they are married for eternity to the prophet joseph and i tell you i am just not doing going to do it in some surprise his wife asked well why not what has come over you you've done this for for many others and why not for them while these sisters are old of course they are just as good as others with whom you have gone through such ceremonies in the temple, acting as proxy proxy for the patriarch and the prophet. Why do you refuse to go with these sisters? Well, I've been thinking lately. Haven't you always been thinking, she interrupted fictitiously. Perhaps, but lately I've been thinking particularly about this proxy business, and I have concluded that I do not like it why not it is taught in the church you have professed to believe it and have stood proxy in several marriages of the sort without objections that i have ever heard why refuse now well wife it is like this he explained i have got to thinking suppose i should die and on gaining the other side should meet patriarch hiram and he would say brother john did you stand proxy for me while sister lola blah, blah, blah was married to me for eternity well yes i did suppose hiram then should ask brother did you have a revelation for me about being married to this sister about me being married to this sister no sir did you have a revelation from the holy ghost about it no sir i did not well did you have any sort of revelation in regard to it no sir none whatsoever then suppose the prophet joseph should turn on me and say elder john i understand you went to the temple and stood with these two women given their names while they were married to me for eternity is that true yes president smith it is i did did you have revelation from me that i wanted such marriages performed and indicating that i would be satisfied with them no sir did the holy spirit reveal anything to you in regard to them or state that it was necessary or proper to have them performed no sir then suppose he should ask sir why did you do it and i would have to stammer and say that I had stood in such ceremony before, and supposed it would be all right, and that they would be pleased with it, etc. Elder John paused, and his wife nodded, Yes, yes, I see, go on. Well, resumed the anxious official, suppose then that the patriarch Hiram and the prophet Joseph should both turn on me and say, Elder John, you have exceeded your rights in this matter, you have stood proxy for us without a revelation from us, or from the Holy Spirit directing or authorising you to do so. Now, sir, we will just say to you that we don't want these vices. You have tried to saddle upon us for eternity, and you may just keep them for yourself. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Another significant pause, and then with an explanation of deep disgust, Elder John added, and wife, God knows I didn't want those damned old hags either, so I am just not going to stand in these proposed marriages. And I am entirely done with this proxy foolishness, so um, I'm gonna stop reading again there, and I want you to think to yourself, what the heck is going on um, So, where did all this come from? And once again, um, during <sighs> there was a lot of um, um issues after um joseph smith died everyone wanted to be connected with him and um people were joining themselves to him um after his death um and this this happened a lot but this was misconstrued Um so people were joined in marriage people were joined um, in ceilings um to joseph smith he was dead so he he wasn't um he wasn't involved how can you how can you um, call someone guilty of marriages that he didn't actually um, ask for and he was dead, <laughs> you know? And this is what's happened. There's been, um, oh, I don't know how to explain it, but you you know what I'm trying to say. Um, he's had it pinned upon his head of many marriages and they were proxy. So... They weren't to do with him. They were to do with um, a needy society that wanted to associate themselves with him in the afterlife. Um, anyway, let's carry on reading. This story was a striking commens- uh, commentary on the principle of marrying by proxy and illustrated the loose manner in which such contracts were made. I felt that well might the patriarch and the prophet be indignant at what was happening and well might they say to several elders just what elder john was supposing they might say to him in the hereafter should he have to appear before them and make confession that without any show of revelation from them or from the spirit world at all he had stood proxy indiscriminately When asked to do so by deluded women obsessed with the desire and ambition to become the wives for eternity of these principal men of the church. No wonder Elder John, in thinking seriously about the responsibilities such an act involved, became uneasy and concluded that in the future no act of his should burden those long departed leaders with further additions to their spiritual families. Interest in this story, and its chief points, will be enhanced when I state that a day or two after it came to my ears, I related it in the presence of Elder John himself and his wife, who was the one who told it to me, carefully omitting the name of the man about whom it was told. As I finished, several in the group laughed, but the Elder looked grave. I turned to him and asked him what he thought of that yarn. With a very solemn and thoughtful face. And in a very sober tone of voice. As though the whole thing was the sorriest kind of a joke. He replied. Well what else could I say. Thereby acknowledging both the correctness of the story. And its personal application to himself. At which his wife and I especially indulged in a most hearty laugh. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> Let's continue. The Norver, the oh my gosh I'm tripping over my tongue thank you for listening and I hope that you're having a good day and I hope that you're learning from all of this and this is called the Nauvoo Legion in the spring of 1840 the city of Nauvoo was organized a charter secured and a stake of the church established about this time a military organization was formed which was called the Nauvoo Legion This has frequently been termed a treasonable organisation, formed for treasonable purposes. Nothing could be further from the truth than that. With no intention of attempting to present anything like a succinct history of the movement, I will simply give my recollections of some events which happened and the men who were connected therewith, with perhaps some of my deductions in regard to them. Whatever may be said as to the wisdom, or lack of it, manifested by the organisation itself and its result in fostering a military spirit among the people, it is not the purpose of these memories to argue. The statute laws of the State of Illinois, which existed at the time the Saints settled in commerce, later to be called Nauvoo, uh, made it obligatory upon every male inhabitant between the ages of 18 and 45, to provide himself with an efficient firearm and upon notice duly given to report at a certain time and place ordered by the military authorities for the purposes of drill and becoming accustomed to the manual of arms and military evolutions the same statute laws also provided for the existence of independent military organizations when the city of Nauru was platted and named and had been had become the home of quite a number of saints. The requirements of the law in regard to arming and drilling were brought to the attention of the people, and a disposition was manifest to comply with them and to be placed under the provisions governing such state militia. It is evident, however, that some leading spirits among them supported the idea of going the step further which was made possible through this provision for an independent organisation. It was deemed better that those belonging to the church should be enrolled together and if required for service to the state in the event of invasion or emergency, be under their own cause of officers. Following this plan, permission was obtained for the organisation of an independent military unit. The legislator of the state created the office of lieutenant general and bestowed it upon Joseph Smith, the president of the church. In her book, Grandmother Smith suggests that he was elected to that office by the people, but she is evidently an error there for Father was invested with the title and office by virtue of the same ordinances which authorized the organization of the legion as an independent body under the militia laws. Thus, the Narvoo Legion came into being, and its members began meeting for drill. Separate companies and regiments were formed generals, colonels, majors, um, captains and other officers appointed and military display began to permeate the settlement. All were not enrolled in companies nor provided with a regimental dress. Neither did the state issue arms to all, but the martial spirit did seem to prevail and flourish in every quarter. It is stated the Legion was composed of some 1,500 men at the time its leaders were murdered at Carthage, of which number, if my memory serves me right, only about 300 had received arms furnished by the State. The remainder carried their own weapons, which consisted of rifles and shotguns of every pattern common to the period and locality. Much as it is to be deplored that such a spirit ever obtained such a foothold among the church members, it is certain that in their organization they were striving to obey the laws of the state and to act in harmony with their provisions. It is possible, too, that they were but trying to put into effect the counsel and advice that they had received from certain authorities in the state of Missouri, viz. to make provisions to defend themselves against lawless violators of their privileges as free American citizens. I'm not sure but similar counsel had also been given them by the man then governor of the state of Illinois. I've no desire or object after the lapse of years to sit in judgment or pass censure upon these men though I may concede that I believe it was a mistake to allow the spirit of militarism to take possession of the leading authorities of the church to such an extent that in the reports of their movements they crept in the use of military appellations such as lieutenant general, general colonel, mayor, major, um, captain to the exclusion of the ecclesiastical uh, designations such as president, high priest, apostle, etc., elder, etc. Blame for some of the warlike disposition among the people has been visited upon the Prophet Joseph Smith, my father, but it must be remembered this, that from 1830 to the time of his death, he and his people were never safe from invasion and persecution from which the saints were well worn out. Raids from savages were not more dangerous than the illegal attacks from white men They had fled from Kirtland to the west to build up a peaceful settlement upon the borders of civilization, And there they had been met not only by ridicule, bigotry, intolerance and bitter religious opposition, but also by injury, oppression and loss of life and property. Their appeal to the the properly constituted guardians of their rights had been met by the council, to establish a means for their own defence, a defence not against enforcement of just laws, but against unlawful violence and outrage. Scripture was even cited as an excuse for such a departure from peaceful methods to maintain their rights. Israel under the law, Moses as a general, and Joshua as his comrades, as warriors. Looking back along the pathway, I feel it was a pity that such a spirit crept in among them. However and a still greater one that the leading minds of the church partook of it. But there was extenuating circumstances which at least palliate their apparent dependence upon human strength, an excuse to a degree their readiness to arm themselves under the laws of the state and be prepared for whatever service they might be called upon to render the community of commonwealth or for whatever defense might be needed in their own protection from outrage their existence at quincy there existed at quincy a company under captain benjamin m prentice called from the color of their regimental dress the quincy blues I remember seeing this very efficiently drilled unit come to Nauvoo and there present a most inspiring sight as it paraded through the streets, much to the great delight of us youngsters. Captain Prentiss had a son who was an accomplished performer upon the snare drum. He seemed to be esteemed by all and to be the pride of the company, which fact made a great impression upon us. We thought it a wonderful thing to be able to make such music on a drum. This Captain Prentice became a general during the War of the rebellion and was in some very trying positions in the conflict conflict. upon one occasion, he was under the, necessi- the necessi- blah 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 <laughs> excuse me tripping over my tongue again and at one occasion he was under the necessity of surrendering his commands for which act. Considerably, considerable fault was found with him, although, if I remember correctly, investigation removed the stigma. It may be noted in passing that Captain Prentice refused to participate in the unlawful raids that were made upon the citizens of Navo. At Carthage, there was another independent military organisation which, from the colour of its uniforms, was called the Carthage Greys and was under the commands of R.G. Smith, a justice of the peace, in that township. When the office, press and fixtures of the Nauvoo Expositor were destroyed, it was R.G. Smith who issued the warrants for the arrest of Joseph and Hiram Smith, and others deemed responsible for that distraction. The Expositor was a paper started in Nauvoo in the spring of 1844 by a number of male contents. Only one number was published which was of so scandalous a nature the town council ordered the press demolished this same captain smith of the carfish Gray was the man who on june the 27th 1844 detailed the small guard left at the jail in Carthage by order of governor ford ostensibly to protect the four men imprisoned there when the jail was attacked by a mob of masked men captain smith was not present and it is well known that the guard signally failed to protect the men in their charge or to properly perform the duties devolving upon them in that capacity whether or not the personnel of this guard had been selected intentionally by captain smith from among those known to be an, at enmity with the imprisoned men will probably never be ascertained i remember seeing him some time after the murder at the jail but i had no personal acquaintance with him There were other organisations in the locality similar to the Narvoo Legion, but these mentioned are the only ones I remember seeing wholly or in part. In order to increase the efficiency of the different corps, suitable drill officers were engaged, among whom I remember quite well as Colonel Brower. His left arm below the elbow was missing and he carried his bridle over over the stump, leaving the right arm free. He was an excellent horseman and a skilful swordsman and fencer. He drifted away from the city after a while and I lost track of him. Father's bodyguard consisted of some sixty horsemen, armed with broads with broadswords. They were under the command, for a time at least, of Cornelius P. Lot, whose commission was bestowed in the manner I have described. Father had a small straight dress sword, and on parade wore a blue coat buff trousers and high military boots. His headdress was what was then known as a chapu decorated with ostrich feathers. His saddle, bridle, military housing, holsters and boots were made by David M. Gamet, who afterwards became a bishop in the reorganised church and died at Little So, um, Iowa, after many years of useful and exemplary life. In Father's outfit, too, I remember two horse pistols and holsters. The pistols, like the usual firearms of the time, were of the flintlock construction. It was before the day of percussion caps. For purpose of ignition, powder was placed in a small iron pan, shaped something like the half of an ordinary teaspoon, fitted near a small hole in one side of the barrel, shut down over this was a cap turning on a hinge held by a spring from which arose a small piece of metal perhaps an inch and a half long against this the hammer would strike and at the impact of the metal and the flint in the hammer sparks of fire would be emitted which falling into the little pan would ignite the powder priming and thus discharge the heavy ball an incident comes to mind which happened one day while a council was being held at our house. Lauren Walker had cleaned father's arms and clothing, and had placed the latter in the wardrobe. The pistols he laid on a bed in the corner of the room, waiting, I suppose, for an opportunity to put them away properly, without disturbing the men in council. I was in the habit of taking a nap, and I lay down upon the bed and went to sleep after a time the sound of the voices in the adjoining room aroused me being still drowsy i lay quietly for a while and then my attention was attracted to the pistols a canopy of curtains was around the bed and over the top as was the custom in those days to keep out mosquitoes and dust thus i was unobserved as in my curiosity i picked up one of the pistols and held it up over me I did not think for a moment that it was loaded or that I could fire it but I remember thinking now if this thing were loaded and I could fire it off I could hit that spot on the canopy overhead. Taking careful aim at the said spot and fingering the trigger as I reflected sure enough like hundreds of similar accidents which happen with arms that are not loaded the pistol was discharged and the spot in the canopy and the ceiling over it decidedly hit. The crash alarmed the men holding the council, supposing the shot came from outside the house and from someone trying to make an attack upon father. They all ran out and looked around. Finding nobody, they were puzzled for a bit, and then walker remembered where he had left the weapons. Running to the bed, he parted the curtains. There I lay with pistol at my side and smoke filling the canopy around me i was unharmed except that the pistol in its recoil had dropped from my hand and hit me a pretty sound thrack on my forehead (laughs) oh gosh at first there was some disposition to scold because the weapons had been left so carelessly but after the scare was over there was a general laugh at my expense The dust which covered me coming from the canopy, and the plaster of the ceiling through which the ball had passed, and the rapidly swelling bump on my forehead, had been about all the fun I had gotten out of the episode. However, it proved to be a good lesson for all, and after that the firearms were carefully kept away from the children, for no one wished to have the experience repeated. Whether or not these particular pistols were furnished by the state, I cannot say, Though I think they were, for I do not remember seeing them after the arms of the legion were collected and surrendered by order of the governor. Under the guardianship of my uncle Arthur Milliken, who furnished me a horse to ride, I joined a small troop of horsemen and became halfway adept in the use of the foil. Upon one occasion, when going through the manual of exercises, the weight of the foil caused me aim to vary caused my aim to vary and i struck my horse on the ear he bolted out of line with me and nearly ran away there was quite a laugh at my expense for had i been using a sword instead of a foil i would have deprived my mount of one of his ears oh dear I did not stay with this group long, however, for soon, a man by the name of Bailey, either by direction of others or upon his own initiative, organised the boys of the city into companies for purposes of drill, and I became a member of one of them. On training days, we were always very much in evidence, and it is one sure thing that so far as keeping rank formation and preserving accuracy and unity in evolutions, were concerned Bailey's boy troops numbering between four and six hundred made a spectacle quite as well worth seeing as did the infantry composed of men of larger growth. It is a record in the annals of this military period of the city that upon one occasion, when there was a big parade and the troops of various units were engaged in evolutions, word was brought to the commanding general as he sat on his charger, surrounded by his aides. And other officers that an invading army was approaching. These invaders proved to be Commander Bailey and his boy troops, who came marching down from the hill in combat, in compact form, making a terrific racket racket with tin pans, piles, sticks, and whatever other noisemakers they could muster. An order was given for a troop of horsemen to be sent to head them off and disperse them. When it approached, When it approached, the oncoming host, Commander Bailey, quickly formed his little band into a compact square and commanded a halt. As the horsemen came nearer, of a sudden, the young company, with a shout, set up such a lively beating upon drums and pans, and such a vigorous wavering of branches and poles that the horses refused to charge upon them. Their riders became very much disconcerted. The commanding general ordered another troop to try it, but they had no better success. It then suggested that the lieutenant general himself on his favorite riding horse, Old Charlie, should be sent at their head into the fray. This splendid horse was of such warlike breed that when the line of cavalrymen approached the noise band of youngsters, instead of showing fear and panic, he charged right into their midst scattering them into every direction to avoid being hurt and thus being the invading army and thus was the invading army dispersed and driven back to their training quarters though the organisation continued for some time I drifted out of its younger portion probably in deference to mother's wishes the legion continued to exist until the time of father's last arrest it is possible that it was this very efficient readiness to defend the rights of the people, which was considered as treasonable. However, that may be, it does seem, that the very spirit in which it was organised, and in which it continued, was indeed military in its character, and undoubtedly helped to cultivate in the people a certain dependence upon human strength and power, as a defence against the encroachments of their persecutors, perhaps a lamentable fact. One of the leading officers in the Legion was John C. Bennett, whose connection with the church is a matter of history. He was not a large man, but he looked well on horseback and felt highly flattered when someone once told him he looked like Bonaparte. Perhaps he did in a way, for he was dark of complexion and, while short and broad-shouldered, was also of slender form. I remember seeing him on horseback with other officers and upon one occasion, at least, when he figured in a bit of excitement. A sham battle was in progress, and in some way he, by accident or design, Dr. Bennett lost control of Colonel Brower's horse which he was riding, and it ran away from him. There followed quite a commotion, and some thought a conspiracy to injure father had been sprung with confusion as a cloak. Father's real friends gathered about him very quickly to protect him, but nothing further came of it. The flags carried by the Nauvoo Legion were the flags of the United States and of the state of Illinois and whose laws it was organised. I'm going to stop reading there um, a moment again and go back to this um, John C. Bennett. Um, He was new in the church at this time. I think he was baptised in like 1840 And, um, he soon, um, was, um, brought into high ranks of the church. And, um, but he is, um, unfortunately the one that brought in spiritual, um, spiritual wifery and things like that. And he, um, he was a doctor and he would say to the women, um, (laughs) <laughs> calling them his spiritual wives, and saying that um being a doctor um he f- he made them pregnant that he could um terminate the pregnancy um you can find out this information I'm sharing it with you and you can research it um but anyway John C Bennett was um quite a downfall and quite um a destruction um to the name of um Joseph Smith because um Joseph Smith uh, Jr. Um, excommunicated John C. Bennett and uh, John C. Bennett um, decided that he was going to be revengeful and um, plot against um, Josie Smith Jr. Anyway, um, that's for you to research. So let's get back to the um, the reading. Um, there was one very large flag which served as the principal standard. The different units had smaller ones which did not differ from those born by other similar companies of militia. It must be borne in mind that whatever was done by these military organisations of those days in Nauvoo was in keeping with their privileges under the militia laws of the State, well within their rights as independent units of the State guards and under properly commissioned officers. Of these latter I remember Father, Uncle Hiram, Uncle Don Carlos, Charles C. Rich and John C. Bennett, whom I have mentioned. Of minor officers, I recall Stephen, Markham, John Pack, and perhaps some others. On parade days, a number of ladies used to ride. On such occasions, my mother rode the black horse, Charlie. She was a splendid horsewoman and made an excellent appearance upon that magnificent animal. Connected with the Legion was a unit known as the band. It was rather a thrilling sight to see the long train of drilled and uniformed men march to the martial music of the band headed by the portly figure of drum-major Dimick Huntington. The drum itself was a mammoth affair made by William Huntington, erstwhile sexton of the city and a man of some genius. I watched him work upon this drum, and when the barrel part was finished, I stood up in it without, stum- without stooping, which, since I was a pretty fair-sized chunk of a boy then, gives an idea of its breadth. During use, it was carried by a large negro named Isaac Manning, who beat it so vigorously when the Legion was on parade in Nauvoo, that its ve- vibrations could be heard, it was said, in Fort Madison, twelve miles away. After this the dispersion from Nauvoo, I lost sight for a time of this drummer, Isaac Manning, and also of his brother, Peter. Years later, upon the occasion of a visit to London, Ontario, I met them both. They were living in that city, each with a white woman for a wife. A A third negro, a barber by the name of Armstrong, also lived there with a white wife. The laws of Canada at that time permitted such marriages. Peter Manning died in Canada, I learned later, and Armstrong's wife left him. Isaac's wife went back to Ohio, where she was raised, and also never returned to her husband. He finally drifted to Salt Lake City, where I met him again in 1905. He was living in a small but comfortable house with his sister, Maria, who, in the old days in Nauvoo, had worked as a domestic for mother. This aged woman made quite a characteristic statement about my mother. Quote, she was the best woman I ever knew. Then she added, quote, and them was all lies about the prophet Joseph having other wives than her. Close, quote, quote. Isaac was then ninety years of age, still strong and hearty. He was nearly as tall as ever, though not quite as rotund as when he used to carry and pound that big drum of Nauvoo Legion fame. He told me he had not heard anything about his wife for some 14 years, although he had tried to find her. Since I have been living in independence, I have learnt of this coloured man's death. Of the dispersion and breaking up of the Legion, my memory is rather barren of details. When under the warrant issued by Justice Smith of, Car- of Carthage, Father and Hiram Smith, excuse me, I'll say that again, Um, When under the warrant issued by Justice Smith of Carthage, Father and Uncle Hiram went to that city to give themselves up in order that the indignation of their friends might not find expression in violence and bloodshed. They were, as is well known, under the avowed protection of Governor Ford. They were met on the prairie by officers sent by the governor ordering the disbanding of the Nauvoo Legion, and the surrender of such arms belonging to the state as were in its possession. This order was obeyed, and under the administration of Stephen Markham, a stand of something like 300 arms, I believe, was delivered up, following with which compliance a hostile troop of some 50 or 60 horsemen rode into the city and took up quarters there, The legion was disbanded and the streets were filled with disordered groups of unarmed militiamen, more or less bewildered at the turn events had taken. It was not until after the return to the city of Brigham Young, president of the Quorum of the Twelve, that the members of the legion were again called together and something like a semblance of order was brought out of the chaos into which the recent tragedy had plunged them quite a lot in this chapter isn't there? Let's continue. Connected with these incidents I recall that by some means there has been left in our house a sort of Queen Anne musket and a short sword that might possibly have come from the south as a machete. These were the only arms we had with the exception of a worn out horse pistol that was used about the house as a candlestick. Later At the time of the general dispersion from Nauvoo, the city came under martial law and the new citizens undertook a programme of defence against the lawless mobs that beset the place. A demand was made that all arms in the city should be delivered up to the civil authorities. Our house was visited by an officer for this purpose and these two weapons, the old gun and the short sword, were taken from us with the promise that they would be returned to us when the war was over. If our knowledge of the cessation of that war depended upon the fulfilment of that promise, we might be justified in thinking the struggle is still going on, for the weapons were never returned to us. I'm going to um, leave it there and carry on recording um, the rest of the chapter in another episode. Um, The next chapter is entitled Brigham Young. Um, So... Join me for the next episode and thank you for your patience in listening to me.